Amen. Well, this morning we are continuing our Advent series uh, entitled Anticipating the Incarnation. And if you haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, what we are doing in this series is, is looking at some of the maybe lesser known ways that the Son of God, Jesus, the, the second person of the Trinity, appears in the Old Testament. It's, it's a really fun series to prepare for because as we're basically trying to do is showing you that there's a lot more Jesus in the Old Testament than you ever thought of before. Now, most of us understand that, of course, Jesus' coming was prophesied in the Old Testament. That's, that's, we get that. We all believe, and like Galatians says, we read earlier this morning, that in the fullness of time, Jesus came, he was born, the word became flesh, as Pastor Josh helped us see a couple weeks ago. But again, here is the deeper question we're trying to get at this Christmas. What was the Son of God doing in the days of the Old Testament? It's kind of an interesting question to ask. We don't often think about it. Was, was he simply sitting on the sidelines, waiting in heaven, watching everything going on, waiting for the incarnation? Was he watching the earth get created? Was he watching the exodus? Was he watching as God unfolded the law from Moses? Was he cheering on the Israelites from the sidelines as they battled the Canaanites? Did he watch as Moses talked with God? Or, or was he there all along taking part in these events, present with his people in a way that would only become clear later? Now, we've partly answered these questions in the, in the previous two sermons, and we'll answer more next week. With Pastor Josh, we looked at, at the Old Testament through the lens of John 1 and saw that Jesus was present as the Word of the Lord, not just as a concept or an idea, but as a person. With Pastor Brian, last week we looked at Proverbs 8, saw that Jesus was present with the people of Israel as the wisdom of the Lord. And, and in a sense, these are both kind of concepts, but this morning gets a lot more physical, should we say. This morning's going to be a bit different. We're going to look at a character that appears time and time again in the biblical history, in the events of the Old Testament, and this character is the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord. And what I want to show you this morning from Scripture is that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity. This is Jesus prior to his becoming man. Now, if that sounds strange to you, it also sounded a little strange to me, but we're going to walk through Scripture and see how we come to this understanding. This is a truth that the church fathers, the reformers, the Puritans all taught and held dear. And so we're going to kind of dig through Scripture and see how did they come to this conclusion how did they come to this conclusion that the eternal son has always been present with his people? Again, not just watching them from heaven, but walking with them, leading them, protecting them, fighting for them. Now, before we kind of get to making our scriptural argument, we need to understand two things, two things. Number one, we have to understand the divine name. Now, you heard it in Exodus 3 as we read but when you look in your Bible, if you still have Exodus, you can open, you can look at it. When you see 
L-O-R-D with all capitals, you know, the big L and the small capital letters, that is the divine name. So it's translating, I think I actually have a picture of this, Mitchell. Yeah. So this is the Hebrew word that that is translating. It doesn't mean Lord. It's the divine name. It means what Exodus says, I am who I am. Now, scholars don't really know um, how to pronounce it, but the best of their guesses is Yahweh or something like that. So if you've heard that before, that's what this is. So again, when you're reading your Old Testament and you see L-O-R-D, all small capital letters, it's the divine name, the name that God revealed to Moses. That's different from Lord with the small letters. That just means Lord. It's kind of the same as sir or something like that. It's important to know this as we go on. If you want a word to impress your friends, scholars like to call this the tetragrammaton, which just means four letters. Um, everything sounds cooler in Greek or Latin, okay? Um, so this is the name that, that is revealed at the burning bush. And this is important because when we're talking about the angel of the Lord, we're talking about the angel of Yahweh. So it always, the angel always comes with the divine name. That's going to be important as we go on. So we have to understand that. So keep that in your head. The second thing is angels. We have to talk a little bit about angels. Because this is a subject, I don't know, maybe more than any other, that, that our concepts of what angels are just gets filled with all sorts of unbiblical pictures and extra stuff. Right? There's TV shows about angels. Touched by an angel. Okay? You guys remember that? My parents used to watch that. Uh, what was that movie with John Travolta? Michael, where he's the angel and he's, he's smoking cigarettes and he's got the wings, okay? Weird movie. These are all very dated references, I, I understand. But one of the reasons we f- might feel a little bit hesitant about saying that Christ is the angel of the Lord is because of our wrong assumptions about what an angel is or who an angel is. Okay, so we just simply, we could say, well, angels have wings, um, Jesus doesn't have wings, so how could Jesus be an angel? That's, right? That's a misconception. So let's talk a little bit about angels. Now, angels appear a lot in the Bible, um, which is funny because we don't talk about them a lot, but they appear a lot in the Bible. They do a lot of different stuff. They are real. They are active. So what are they? What is an angel? Okay, well, the, the term angel in the Bible, this is really important, does not describe a type of being but describes a role. Okay, this is really, it it describes, this is different from how we use it in English. If I say angel in English, you immediately pop into your head a type of being. That's not how the Bible uses the term. That's kind of something that language has developed over time. The original Hebrew word for angel is malik. Greek, angelos, it just means messenger. So it's the role of messenger. The role of messenger. So after, again, after the Bible was written, English kind of developed off the Greek, and so we get this word angel. Um, and so it's, it's helpful, but this word comes with a little bit of baggage that it doesn't have in Scripture. Uh, now, most of the time, this, this word is used to describe what we would think of as an angel, supernatural messenger from God, but not always. So this word, malik, which is translated angel, can also just describe a human messenger, so like Genesis 32.3 says, Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau. That's the same word that's translated angels in other part of scripture. So context really helps us determine 
What is this talking about? Is this talking about a human messenger or a divine supernatural messenger? It's a role. So the term angel is not a class of being. It's a role. This is very important, again, where we're headed this morning. So if we're going to say that Jesus is this angel, if it's a class of being, now we're a heretic, okay? But if it's a role, we can fit this in. So, so keep that in your mind. The most basic level, an angel is a supernatural messenger from God. What do they do, right? What do angels do? They give, well, they give messages to humans from God. That's one thing, okay? So think of the Christmas story. The angel Gabriel is the one who brings the message to Mary that she's going to have a son and, you, you know, the whole story. If you don't know the story, come back on Christmas Eve and we'll talk about it. it Gabriel also appears in the book of Daniel. Again, he's, he's helping Daniel interpret his dreams. He's, he's a messenger from God. But angels do a lot of other things in Scripture as well. Revelation 5, they are in heaven, in the heavenly realm, worshiping God. The book of Hebrews gives us kind of a definition. It says that angels are ministering, so servant spirits, ministering spirits, sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation, which is a really cool thing to think about. In other words, God uses his angels to serve us. Uh, Interesting. It was angels who shut the mouths of the lions in Daniel and the lion's den. Okay, so you can see that, that role of God's servants doing his works on earth there. 2 Kings 6 is a really cool story. Elisha, the prophet, and his servant, they're in danger. There's an army coming after him. And Elisha's servant says, he's really scared. And Elisha says, stop being scared. He says, no, I'm really scared. And so Elisha prays. God opens the eyes of the servant, and he sees on the hills surrounding him a huge angelic army. Okay, again, they're protecting those who are God's people. That's one of the things they do. It was an angel that broke Peter out of prison in the book of Acts. So again, protecting, working on behalf of God's people. Pretty straightforward. But angels also are the ones, many times, who deal out God's judgment. Um, 2 Kings 6, again, these these angels are not um, tame, harmless little babies with wings, okay, as we picture them sometimes. These are divine warriors. It's It's an army. That's how they're often depicted. That's why many times when people meet an angel... They're not happy, they're terrified. Acts 12 is a really interesting example of this. It's an angel that strikes down King Herod. The text says this, On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, delivered an oration to them. The people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. And here's God's ironic sense. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Okay, so notice, not the angel, but an angel of the Lord struck him down. So angels deal out judgments. It's in Matthew 13. Jesus tells us at the end of the age, it's the angels, specifically his angels, that will gather the elect for glory and will gather the wicked for judgment. They work on behalf of God. So these are some of the things that angels do according to to Scripture. They're God's servants. They announce his messages. They protect and serve God's people and enact his judgments. Okay, so that's what they they do. That's kind of who they are. But what do they look like? That's kind of what we want to know, right? Um, We usually picture them as some type of humans with wings. Um, A lot of times, especially in like Christmas art, they're feminine. Um, I'm just going to ruin all of your favorite Christmas pictures right now. There's never depicted in the Bible a female angel. 
Um, so why? I don't know, but they're just always depicted as men. Angels are also never described as having wings in the Bible. That is a tradition that has developed over time. Okay, so again, if you look at the traditional Christmas art, angels always have wings. The Bible never describes angels with wings. It's a tradition that has developed over time. Now, why has this tradition developed? Well, we could speculate. There are other spiritual beings that are described as having wings. The seraphim and the cherubim from the Old Testament, those are never described as angels. Again, those are other roles guarding God's throne room that angels don't play. Now, I think that we depict them as having wings because it says oftentimes the angels ascend into heaven. But guess what? Jesus also ascended into heaven. He didn't need wings to do it, okay? They're spiritual beings. They don't need physical wings to fly. Anyway, so they appear in human form in Scripture. Sometimes they're mistaken for men. So they look somewhat regular, we could say. Um, Maybe glorious-looking man like, I don't know, Chris Hemsworth, okay? Uh, Something like that. Maybe that's what angels look like. Um, Now, most of the time, angels in the Bible are not named. There's just, you know, angels did this, and the angels did this, and there was an angel. But there are some important ones that are named. Gabriel, we said. He appears in Daniel. He announces the birth of Christ. And then there's Michael, who shows up in the book of Jude and Daniel as well. He's given the title archangel, so apparently there's there's some... ranking in this angelic system. Again, if it's an army, that makes sense, right? But the angel that shows up most in scripture is not any of these. It's the angel of the Lord. Or in some texts, we'll see he's called the angel of God. Some just refer to him as the angel uh, with the very important. So this morning, if you hear me say the angel, that's who I'm talking about. Now, this unique angel is present in almost all of the well-known stories that you can think of in the Old Testament, and yet, oftentimes, when we think of those stories, we leave them out of the story. Did you notice in Exodus 3, who appeared to Moses? It was the angel of the Lord. And yet, when you watch the movie about the Exodus or you think of the burning bush incident, do you picture the angel of the Lord in the bush? We often don't. There's a bunch more of these. It was the angel of the Lord who talked to Abraham. It was the angel of the Lord who stopped Abraham's hand as he was going to sacrifice Isaac. It was the angel of the Lord who struck down the firstborn sons of Egypt. It was the angel of the Lord who's credited with leading the Israelites out of Egypt and through the wilderness. It's the angel is the one who appears before Balaam and his donkey and opens his mouth so that the donkey talks. It's the angel of the Lord who talks with Gideon during the whole fleece episode. It's the angel of the Lord who in one night goes out and strikes down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in the book of 2 Kings. Now again, what I'm I'm arguing this morning is that this character is the pre-incarnate Christ. So we're going to go through this kind of three steps to show you this. Step number one. Things we have to understand. These are kind of logically ordered. Step number one, we have to see that the angel of the Lord is the Lord. The angel of the Lord is Yahweh. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is the visible and physical manifestation of God. 
He is a messenger of God, but he is more than just a messenger. It's God himself in visible form. Now, there's a lot of different ways we could go with this, but we're just going to look at some texts that, that show us this. So the first way we see this is that the angel and God are used interchangeably. So if you want to see this, let's go to Genesis 16. Genesis 16, and I've got these verses on the screen if you don't want to flip there. But it's important to see this with your own eyes. So Genesis 16, this is the story of Hagar. Um, we'll be there in a couple months, actually. Hagar uh, is, is Abraham's concubine, and he sleeps with her to have a son because things aren't working out. Not really important for this morning. But look, look what happens. Genesis 16, 7. Hagar is, is um, taken away from the camp, and she meets the angel of the Lord. It's verse 7. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. Okay, so this is a physical appearance. He appears and talks with Hagar. And that will become clear later. The angel tells her to go back to Sarai. He promises her many offspring. And then look what she says in verse 13 and 14. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Okay, so the angel is the one speaking to her. And she calls the name of the Lord. That's the divine name, Yahweh, who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. I've seen. Notice all the seeing language. Therefore, the well was called Be'er Lachai Roi, the well of the living one who sees me. It's between Kadesh and Bered. Okay. Hagar talks with the angel, and she says, I spoke with God. She sees the angel, and she says, I saw God. Okay? There's a lot of instances like this in Scripture. People who see the angel of the Lord, talk with the angel of the Lord, and yet at the same time say, I spoke with Yahweh, God himself. There's another text like this, Genesis 32, Jacob wrestling with God. This is such an interesting text. Genesis 32, starting in verse 22, Jacob encounters a man in the middle of the night, actually early in the morning. Genesis 32, starting in verse 24, actually. Jacob's left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. So again, what are we noticing? This is a physical manifestation. Jacob's wrestling, not with the spirit. He's wrestling with a man. When a, the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Who is this? For you have striven with God and with men and prevailed. Okay, so he's not only says, you've wrestled with me, you've wrestled with God. We get that. He's exercising divine authority by changing Jacob's name. Jacob then turns the question back on him. Please tell me your name. But he says, why is it that you ask my name? So he doesn't tell him. And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Now, you might be thinking, aren't there like a bunch of places in the Bible where it says no one has seen God? Yes. This has a solution for this. Okay, so Jacob wrestles with God, a physical 
manifestation of God. He sees God face to face. And you might be saying, well, there's no angel of the Lord in this text. Well, he's not identified here, but look at what Hosea, Hosea chapter 12 says about this incident. Hosea chapter 12 says this, the Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. So he's talking about Jacob. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel and there God spoke with us. The Lord, divine name, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. Now, we could go to the episode at Bethel and see a whole bunch of more really cool stuff there. Jacob wrestled with the angel. That's what Hosea says. The angel of the Lord, and this is what we see all across the Old Testament, is the physical, visible manifestation of God in the Old Testament. This is how the Bible can say, no one has seen God, and yet at the same time say, oh, lots of people have seen God. There's, there's something going on in the text. There's a tension arising and I hope that all of your Trinitarian senses are tingling. People see God and yet they don't. They wrestle with God and yet don't. God is a spirit and yet he's not. So when these people are seeing God, who are they seeing? They're seeing the angel of the Lord. Are they seeing the angel of the Lord or are they seeing the Lord himself? And what the Old Testament is saying is, yes, exactly. To see the angel is to see God. So that's one way we can see. And there's a lot of other texts in that category. Number two, we see that the same events are attributed to both the Lord and the angel of the Lord. So the Bible will often describe an event and say the Lord did this. And then in another text say the angel of the Lord did this. Let's ask ourselves a question. Test case. Who led the Israelites out of Egypt in the pillar of cloud and smoke? Well, the obvious answer, God did that. I've seen the Prince of Egypt, right? Uh, not, not the best authority, great movie, not the best authority for biblical knowledge, okay? Great music though, right? Um, anyone who's spent a small amount of time in Sunday school knows this. God led the people out of Egypt, right? Exodus 13, 21 tells us that clearly. And the Lord, divine name, Yahweh, went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night really clear. God was the one in the pillar of fire and in the pillar of cloud to lead them out. Okay, we get that. And then one chapter later in Exodus 14, 19, look what it says. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So now we see it's the angel is the one in the cloud who's moving in the, in the cloud is all that. So again, who, who, who's doing this? Is this the Lord or the angel? Again, the Bible's telling us, yes, yes. The answer is yes. The angel of the Lord is the Lord. Are, are you seeing it? Do you see how their, their names are being used interchangeably? The work of the angel is the work of the Lord. This is made even clearer later in scripture. Uh, Judges chapter two, um, the angel appears again. And describes this event in the first person. Judges chapter 2. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to, to Bo Bohem. And he said, the angel said, I brought you up from Egypt. And brought you into the land. And this is even more clear. I swore to give to your fathers. 
that an angel is saying, I said, I will never break my covenant with you. See what this is revealing to us. The angel is the one who made the covenant with Abraham. And again, you can kind of feel this tension. Well, I thought it was God who did. Yes, exactly. That's, that's the exact point. The angel of the Lord is, on one hand, distinguishable from Yahweh in some sense, and yet at the same time, is Yahweh. Again, Trinitarian sense is tingling. The writers of Scripture can look at something the angel did and say, God did it. They can look at things the angel says and say, God said it. They can look at things that God said and say, the angel said it. Because the angel is the one who appears to people and speaks with them in Scripture. The angel himself, if you've noticed from that text in Judges 2, can speak as God in the first person. No other angels speak like this in Scripture. If you think about, we don't have time to look there, but if you think about Gabriel appearing to Mary, he talks about God in the third person. God said this, and God said this, and God promised you this. That's not how the angel talks. The angel always says things in the first person. I promise you this. I will do this. I will do this. I will do it. Becoming a little clearer. Also, there are texts that just directly equate God with the angel. And this, this is one of the most clearest ones. Genesis 48, chapter 14. So Jacob is blessing his sons. It's called Israel in this text. We saw why earlier. He's blessing his sons, and this is what it says. Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. I guess like this. For Manasseh was the firstborn, and he blessed Joseph and said, listen to what he says, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. So who's that? Yahweh. It's God. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. Bless there, the verb is in the singular. He's talking about one person. He's paralleling it. The God who before my Abraham Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd, the angel who's redeemed me from all evil. He's saying that all about the same person. Bless my boys, and in them let my name be carried on. And he goes on. Grammatically, it's inescapable. He's equating God with the angel. He's the one, again, remember, Jacob is the one who wrestled with the angel. He knows what he's talking about from experience. He knows that they're the same person. And fourthly, and again, there, there are so many other things we can look at, but fourthly, the angel is described as the one who bears the divine name and the authority of God. Exodus chapter 23, God says this, Behold, I send an angel. So here's where you're getting a little bit of, well, God sends the angel, so he's, he's distinct in some sense. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Amen. We've already seen in other texts that this is the angel of the Lord. Listen to what God says. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Okay, we don't have time to get into divine name theology. But when God says my name is in him, what he's saying is, that's me. Who has the authority to forgive sins but God alone? Who has the very divine name, Yahweh, within himself other than God alone? No one. 
No one. The angel of the Lord is the manifested, visible presence of God. He bears the divine name within himself. He has the authority to forgive sins. He is God in visible form. And again, we saw with Jacob, physical visible form. There's other texts where he eats. He eats with people. He's distinguished from Yahweh, so he's an angel that Yahweh sends, and at the same time, he is Yahweh. He's physical enough that, again, Jacob could wrestle with him, people could speak with him face to face, and yet he is the Lord. Now, the ancient Jews understood this. You you might remember this from Joshua's sermon. The the Jews who lived before Jesus was born were were different than, than Jews today. I mean, a lot of things have happened, right? They called this idea... This understanding, they, they sensed this tension in the Old Testament. They called it the two powers in heaven. So they would read the Old Testament and be like, it seems like there's two Yahwehs. That's what they would say. There's, there's a Yahweh in heaven and there's a, a Yahweh that appears to people. Again, they called it the two powers in heaven. So they would look at texts like, uh, like Genesis 19. Look at this text from Genesis 19. Then the Lord, Yahweh, rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from Yahweh out of heaven. There's a text where they would look at that and say, there's there's something going on here. There's one God. They were were monotheists. There's one God, and yet within this one God, there's there's a plurality of persons somehow. Trinitarian sense is tingling, okay? We have the answers to this. But even they were sensing this tension, and that's important to realize. It's how they understood passages like Daniel 7, where you have these two divine figures, the Ancient of Days and this divine Son of Man. They would say, look, there's the two Yahwehs again. You start to see this. Now, again, Josh explained this, but after Christ came, the Jews made it a heresy to talk that way, obviously because of Jesus. Jesus came along claiming, that's me. Starting to see this, okay? So we have this, this knowledge, thanks to God, that the Jews did not have. We know who this mysterious figure is. We know who the visible manifestation of God is. And that's step number two, okay? So step number one, the angel of the Lord is the Lord. We've seen that. Step number two, Jesus Christ, this is almost kind of like a little uh, parenthesis. Jesus Christ is the Lord. Amen, hallelujah. I'm sure we all confess that, but let me show you some things here that's important to understand. Jesus Christ is the Lord. When we say that, what we're saying is not just Lord, lower cap, lower letters, all caps. Jesus is Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, okay? That's very important to understand. He's not some new God that's come on the scene. He is the God of the Old Testament. And we're not going to spend a lot of time here, but this, this is like, the central claim of the New Testament. The central, if you distill Christianity down to its smallest, 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 smallest form, its most essential confession is this, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. This Messiah that we say we believe in is the eternal God the eternal son. And yet, he's somehow distinguished from God. He is somehow God in the flesh and at the same time sent from God. Sound familiar? We see this all over the place in the Bible. We saw it in John 1. In the beginning was the word. Okay, so he's eternal. 
and the word was with God. So he's with God. So he's in some sense distinguished from God and the word was God. Okay. So he's distinguished from God and yet God at the same time, he was in the beginning with God. You can see a similar tension that we saw in the old Testament. We also see this even more clearly, perhaps in passages where new Testament writers take old Testament passages that are about the Lord Yahweh and use them to describe Jesus. Philippians 2, chapter, Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. A very well-known piece of scripture. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Paul's not just waxing poetic here. He's quoting Isaiah. He's taking Old Testament passage and squishing Jesus' name into it because of what he knows. Isaiah chapter 45, this is what he's doing. Was it not I, the Lord? Okay, so remember what Paul just said. The confession is this, Jesus Christ is Lord. Isaiah 45, was it not I, the Lord? There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. There's only one God. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So God is speaking in Isaiah saying, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess. Paul's saying, Jesus Christ is Lord, that is what every tongue should confess. It's to Jesus that every knee should bow. You see, he's comparing them because Jesus is the manifestation of God. He is God in human flesh. He is Yahweh, and yet he's sent by Yahweh, just like the angel. Paul doesn't hesitate to take this passage that's explicitly about God and apply it directly to Jesus because he's Lord. It's the essence of the Christian faith. We see the same thing in Romans 10. Paul does that. Many other places. Jesus Christ is truly and completely God, equal in majesty and glory with the Father, the Spirit. He is the eternally preexistent Son of God. He is the one who was and is and is to come, the Alpha and the Omega. And brothers and sisters, He was not sitting on the sidelines in the Old Testament. He was present with His people as the angel of the Lord, visible, pre-incarnate form, leading his people, talking to Abraham, talking to Moses. That's why when we see the transfiguration, we see him talking with Elijah and Moses. He had talked to them before. Step three. So Jesus is Yahweh. Step three. The Son is the visible manifestation of God, the angel of the Lord. Now, if this is true, if what I'm saying is true, we should see clues all over the New Testament, right? That's exactly what we find. The Holy Spirit speaking through the authors of the New Testament reveals to us in many ways that Christ is the visible manifestation of God. In the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. He was the one that appeared to the prophets. He was the one leading and protecting his people. He is the word of the Lord, the divine messenger of God, who is God himself. In other words, when the Old Testament saints saw God, they saw the Son in his pre-incarnate form. 
Now again, there are clues all throughout the New Testament. First is a clue from silence. This is a central character in the Old Testament. And yet, all of a sudden we get to the New Testament and he's gone. He's, he appears nowhere. You will not find the phrase, the angel of the Lord in the New Testament, except in Matthew, and it's just referring back to an angel that had appeared earlier. He disappeared. So either this character somehow just went out of existence, or he's there more than we could ever imagine. And that's what we find. We see this all over the place. Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in John 12. Okay, he's rebuking them, as he is wont to do. And he quotes Isaiah 6. Now, Isaiah 6 is the famous chapter where Isaiah sees, according to his words, a vision of the Lord upon his throne. So Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6, he says, I saw the Lord on his throne. And again, if we don't understand this, we don't think he actually saw someone, but he did. He saw Christ. John 12 tells us this. So he quotes Isaiah 6, and then John says this, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. John's saying, when Isaiah says he saw the Lord, he saw the glory of Christ, who is the glory of God, and spoke of him. He spoke of the Son. The same is true of Abraham, which is why Jesus can say in John chapter 8, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus doesn't say this because he's omniscient, he knows all things, he kind of knows about Abraham. He's saying this because he was the one that spoke with Abraham. And remember the Pharisees' response, right? They get that he's claiming to have talked to Abraham. They say, you're not yet 50 years old. You've seen Abraham, right? So again, Jesus is not claiming to have some prophetic knowledge of Abraham, they, they get that he's saying, I was there, okay? Kind of like Elrond in Lord of the Rings. I was there 3,000 years ago. That's what Jesus is doing. They say, you're not old enough to have seen Abraham. And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not only did Jesus see Abraham, he spoke with him because he eternally existed before him. Now, Paul and Jude make this connection undeniable. Remember what we saw. Who led the people of Israel out of Egypt and through the desert? It was God in the form of the angel of the Lord. We saw that clearly from Exodus. Paul and Jude both say, yeah, that was Jesus. Jude chapter, well, I guess Jude is only one chapter. Jude 5. Look at at what Jude says. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, Afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Clear as day. Jude says, yeah, that was Jesus. That's why you guys know the song we have, Jude Doxology. Remember, remember, Jesus brought us out of Egypt. That's why the song says it. In the form of the angel. Paul again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 4. Speaking of the same event, for I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, speaking of the Red Sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. The rock was Christ. Christ was there. He was there with his people in the wilderness. He followed them in the wilderness. He nourished them in the wilderness. He was there. He wasn't sitting on the sidelines. And if he was there, how was he present? 
as the angel of the Lord. First, Paul goes on in a couple of verses after that. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. When they put God to the test in the wilderness, they were putting Christ to the test, Paul says, and Christ destroyed them by serpents. He was there. Who's the one that carries out God's judgments in the Old Testament? It's the angel of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, it's clear that the angel of the Lord is God himself. And this is just the tip of the iceberg. If you want to dive into the subject, I've got plenty of resources for you. He's the visible appearance of Yahweh. He's the word. He bears the divine name. He's the commander of the Lord's armies. There's only one person who fits this description. One who is God and yet is sent by God. It's Christ. It's Christ himself. That's the testimony of the apostles. Now, you might be saying, as I did, well, if this is true, why haven't I heard this before? Seems like kind of a big deal, right? Maybe you have. I really hadn't. And the truth is, I don't know. I don't know how this truth has fallen out of conversation. Maybe we've been taught to read the Bible wrong in some way. But this is not a new idea or a new interpretation. This is how... Pretty much all the church fathers, all the reformers, all the Puritans, and everyone else had read the Bible for millennia. So the fault's on us if we're not getting this. The church through the ages has always seen the angel of the Lord as the son in his pre-incarnate state. Let me just give you a couple quick examples so you don't think I'm crazy. Irenaeus, church father, writing in the second century, so not long after the apostles, he says this, the son of God is implanted everywhere throughout his writings. At one time, indeed, speaking with Abraham when about to eat with him. At another time, bringing down judgment upon the Sodomites. And again, when he becomes visible and directs Jacob on his journey and speaks with Moses from the bush. Irenaeus, that's the son of God. Cyprian, church father, writing in the third century, says simply, Christ is at once angel and God. Basil, writing in the fourth century, says this, so it is clear to all that where the same one is designated both angel and God, it is the only begotten who is revealed. And there's tons more, but my favorite, John Owen, okay, writing in the 17th century, Puritan. He says this, Some of late interpreters would apply all of these appearances to a created delegate angel. He says, The conceit of this is irreconcilable with the sacred text and is contrary to the senses of the ancient writers of the Christian church. He says, if you think the angel of the Lord is some created delegate angel, you're completely missing the point, and you're going against the entire history of the church. We could go on, but John's made the point for us. Christ was present with his people in the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, as the manifestation of God himself. That's the testimony of Jesus. It's the testimony of the apostles. It's the testimony of the church throughout the ages. But so what? What implications does this have? What, what, how does this affect us? How does this affect our understanding of Jesus? There are many ways. I want to just mention a few. And again, again, if this is kind of intriguing to you, there are a lot of resources. But just as you lead up to Christmas, as you're meditating on Scripture, Maybe read through some familiar Old Testament passages. See where you can find the angel of the Lord. See how this might impact your view of Jesus as the birth of Christ. A couple of implications of this. Number one, 
it changes our view of Jesus, or maybe adds to it, because it changes how we read the Old Testament. It was Jesus who talked and walked with Abraham. It was Jesus who stopped Abraham's hand from killing his one and only son. It was Christ himself who struck down the firstborn sons of Egypt. It was Christ who led the Israelites out of Egypt and through the wilderness. It was Christ who appeared before Balaam with a drawn sword and let the donkey talk. It was Christ who spoke with Gideon. It was Christ who struck down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers in one night. It was even Christ whom Joshua encountered as he stood on the heights above Jericho. Joshua chapter 5. Joshua lifts up his eyes and looks, and behold, a man was standing before him. There's that word again, a man. This is a visible appearance. This man is standing with a drawn sword in his hand. The only character that's ever described that way is the angel of the Lord. Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or for our adversaries? He's obviously a little intimidating looking. And he said, no. Best answer in all of scripture. Are you on our side or their side? No. He said, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. That's the divine name. Now I have come. Okay, so the people are about to go into the promised land. Here's who's going before them, the commander of the Lord's armies. Look at Joshua's response. And he fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now think of Revelation. What happens when people try to worship angels? They say, don't worship me, worship God. That does not happen here. He says, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. That's Christ. He is the commander of the armies of heaven. He is. Now, this also, this, this addition to our understanding of Christ, maybe our, a bigger understanding of Christ this heightens the glory of the incarnation. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Jesus was incarnate in the Old Testament. No, he had some type of body apparently, but he had not yet become, keyword there, become flesh. The birth of Christ, the incarnation is utterly unique and glorious. Whereas Christ appeared in human form in the Old Testament, in the new, the eternal second person of the Trinity took to himself human flesh as we confessed earlier. And by doing so, he eternally and irrevocably united his divine nature to his human nature within the one person. The son has always existed, but he has not always existed as the God-man. But now, because of the incarnation, he will always exist as truly God and truly human. Yahweh united to human flesh. You see, the Old Testament saints, they saw Christ as God. They interacted with him. But we know him both as God and as human, as one of us. Not just in the form of a human, but as actually, truly, really human, born of a woman, born under the law. 
for us and for our salvation. That's the glory of Christmas. The Lord has always been with his people. But in Christ, he is Emmanuel, God with us. This also deepens our sense of awe at the humiliation of Christ. This one was was really just hitting me this week as I was exploring the scriptures. Understanding Jesus as, as this glorious manifestation of God in the Old Testament just makes the, the, the crucifixion hit even harder. It was the great angel of the Lord, the, the one who bore the divine name, the divine warrior, the, the, the commander of the Lord's armies who we just saw, the one who rained down fire on Sodom, the one who struck down the Assyrian army. It was this Jesus who became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ, the great warrior and judge, allowed himself to be falsely judged by a pathetic lying court of humans. The author of life allowed men to nail him to a Roman cross, hang him like an animal and mock him. He says this, he could have called down legions of angels, legions And yet, he chose to die in our place and for our sins. The angel of the Lord, the one who in the Old Testament wielded the sword of God's judgment, allowed that very sword of judgment to fall upon himself, though he was innocent. The dealer of divine wrath bore the divine wrath in our place, so that we might be saved from our sins, though we were weak and ungodly, so that we might know him as Savior, so that we might be adopted as sons and daughters, so that we might rule and reign with him in glory for all eternity. So it deepens our sense of awe at the humiliation of Christ. It also heightens our ability to trust Christ as protector and rescuer. There are very real dangers in this world, and there is an incredible amount of evil. This understanding of Jesus as the angel of the Lord, the divine warrior, greatly should encourage us in the face of these things. When the church throughout time, ancient and present, has been heavily persecuted, where does she turn for encouragement? Where does she turn for justice? She turns to the image of Christ, the warrior, who will bring justice fully and finally. Understanding Jesus as the angel makes so much more sense of the pictures that we see of his second coming in the New Testament. Jesus returning in Revelation 19 at the head of an army, his robe dipped in blood, he carries a sword to judge and make war. This is not something new. This is what he did in the Old Testament. 2 Thessalonians 1, the same picture. Christ returns to enact vengeance upon his enemies. He arrives with his angels to carry out 
true justice. All of these texts are being written to persecuted churches saying, don't worry, although you're experiencing so much injustice, Christ is coming back and he will bring justice. When Matthew describes Christ's return again, he says that Christ is going to come with his angels, not the angels of God or not some of the angels, his angels. Well, why are they his? He's the commander of the legions of heaven. He was before and he is once again. These are truths and images that have comforted the persecuted church for centuries. Now, some modern Christians are embarrassed of these descriptions of Jesus. I was talking to a brother from another church recently who was giving this viewpoint. He thought it made Jesus look uh, mean and scary and, and intolerant. He said it doesn't fit with the, the rest of the Bible. He's missing the angel of the Lord, obviously. He said he, he wished these things weren't in the Bible. I almost ripped my hair out. I almost fell off my chair. I, I, was, I was speechless. Okay, I wasn't really speechless. <laughs> I had a lot to say, and it was a good conversation. But Christ's final execution and judgment of all evil is our great hope. It's not something to be embarrassed of. It's his victory. It's our victory in him. It's what we've been longing for. Now, there is a sense in which we can say, not yet because I want more people to get saved. Okay, sure, yes. Yes. But it's our joy, it's our consolation. The whole point of the cross is that we no longer have to fear the judgment of God because we're in Christ himself by faith. But those outside of Christ should fear They should turn and repent and put their faith in him. Again, Revelation tells us that when Christ returns, people will call for the rocks and hills to fall upon them, to hide them, not from the wrath of God, from the wrath of the Lamb. We should not be embarrassed. This is our Savior. This is our Lord. This is our King, our victor. It's our hope. We should stand in awe of him. This Jesus has accomplished Salvation for us by his life, by his humiliation on the cross, by his victorious resurrection. This very same Jesus will one day return and descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And we will meet him face to face. That time, he will finally and completely destroy all wickedness, all evil. He will eradicate death and disease and sin and sorrow and Satan himself. He will come just as he was in the days of old, with his sword drawn, ready to make war on the enemies of God. And ready to raise to life his people who rule and reign with him forever. This Jesus, the Christ, is our King, our Savior, and our hope. The one who, just like the Israelites, is leading us, protecting us, going before us and behind us, guiding us, and he will bring us safely home. Amen? To him be all glory and all honor, all dominion and authority before all time and now and forever.
And let us say with the Spirit and the Bride, come quickly.